As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi, hello. Thanks for joining us for this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast with myself, Ali Maxwell, with the regular crew, Michael Cox, Mark Carey and Liam Tharm. On this week's pod, we're getting conceptual. Uh, Liam, in particular, you were the one that brought this idea to the table. So what's it about and why? It's kind of looking at the theory that a team at any sort of top level, this can be a big club or even some of the, the smaller Premier League clubs in particular, can lose a key player, a player that they're quite reliant on and can possibly get better or maybe more balanced. Uh, and maybe we expect them to have a big drop off in terms of their quality or their goals output. Uh, and it simply just doesn't quite happen. And we expect the the player's departure to really negatively impact. And we're seeing already the season and we'll come on some of these teams, but numerous Premier League clubs that have adapted really well. Yeah, I think an alternative title might be how to lose a star gracefully essentially discussing whether it's possible to lose your talisman and adapt in such a way that you're not as negatively impacted as some people might assume. Now, listeners of the pod who are also fans of US sports may have heard of the Ewing theory, popularized by Bill Simmons over in the States. This is when, according to Simmons, uh, a star athlete that receives a large amount of media attention and fan interest, but crucially never leads his teams to any meaningful success, leaves and then the team exceeds expectations without the player. It should be said that the Ewing theory has been fairly robustly debunked over time, uh, particularly by New York Knicks fans that somewhat worship Patrick Ewing. Um, But it's still, I think, an interesting concept and worth applying to football. So thanks to Liam for bringing it to the table. I mean, Michael, Mark, Liam, instinctively, do you think there is something in the idea of being too reliant on a player? Yeah, I think it's definitely... A danger. I think it applies probably more now than ever because I think modern football is very systemized and I think teams are more intelligent at not just stopping one player but just preventing opponents from getting the ball to him in the first place. So I think you can go back to even the 80s, certainly the 90s, there was lots of pretty good teams that were based around one or two players and really just relying on them for individual magic. But now it's it's a different game. It's about build-up play. It's about pressing. Everything's coordinated. So yeah, if you do have one player and make a lot of allowances for them, 
I think it can be dangerous. And I think we've seen a lot of examples of that in, in recent years. I would say Manchester United bring in Ronaldo. It's a slightly different thing to what we're talking about. It's almost the opposite. But they went backwards when they brought in a star player. Um, and I think there was a sense that a few clubs were were slightly handicapped by that. I said Chelsea with Lukaku, Arsenal with Aubameyang for a bit. When they sold those players, they tended to improve. The Ronaldo example is interesting as well because I think it kind of speaks to more of a social, psychological phenomenon that he was kind of taking, not taking over the dressing room, but he was such a domineering figure. He was so sort of single-minded that, yes, Manchester United haven't gone on to, to achieve great success in the short space of time since he's left. But And yes, there's other stuff going on off the field in the Manchester United dressing room. But I think that the point still remains in terms of the sort of the demands that Cristiano Ronaldo used to sort of place on the players from a football perspective that he was so driven and as I say so single-minded that that would then maybe lead to others maybe not stepping up quite in the same way and, and sort of gearing their attack towards him which we which we saw for the second coming of, of Ronaldo at United. I think this is something that's compounded now as well by the sheer volume of analysis that clubs can do and the time that they can spend on sort of curating these plans to say okay we can know if we take Spurs as the example that we'll come on to more but we know how Kane likes to attack we know where he's going to score goals we can come up with a plan to um, you know, have our build up in a certain way or defend in a certain way with a certain system and shape that it's becoming harder I think to have individual brilliance as a sole way to sort of win a game and I think from a, a coaching perspective that it must feel like it's almost a lot more hopeful I think than it is being systematic and planned because you're saying I'm going to back on this player having a good game having a good day and if that doesn't go well or go right then I'm going to need a plan B a plan C and I think as we've sort of repeatedly spoken about on this podcast, that the best teams now seem to be the most tactically adaptable and against different games and against different opposition, that there are just certain times where a player has a style that doesn't suit the opposition that they're playing against. And when you become too reliant on playing around them, I think you can lose sight of what you could achieve with the other players and being more flexible in that regard. It's interesting because there's something almost counterintuitive to what we're talking about when you consider that there is still a huge focus on individual players, on individual quality, on each team's star players. There's huge focus on the transfer market and is this player going to improve this team and why? Uh, and yet, Michael, I think we're all more or less alluding to the fact that the game is probably more of a collective game than ever. So uh, for me, there's something slightly counterintuitive in, in the way that a lot of people think about football and what we're saying to be probably more the case. Yeah, I mean, there's competing concepts here. I mean, football itself on the pitch is more about the team than ever. And I think the coverage of football is more about individuals than ever. And I'd extend that to the transfer market. I mean, I think these days almost everything in football coverage is coming back to the transfer market, certainly compared to 10 or 20 years ago. And that obviously is about buying and selling individuals. So yeah, people like to focus on on star players more than ever. But I do think the the system and the... The collective is actually more of an important concept than it's ever been in football. Okay, so we've got plenty of test cases in the Premier League this season, really, in terms of teams losing someone that would be considered their number one star player. The most obvious one, perhaps, being Tottenham Hotspur losing Harry Kane and maybe, Liam, getting better. Maybe. Um, it's interesting. Their, their start to the season after um, six games, I think it is, is the same as last season in terms of their points acquired. And um, they had a really good start last season, of course, fell away towards the end. So maybe that sort of points to the idea that, you know, this can work for a period. And I think it's also interesting that Kane scored so many headed goals last season. I think he set a record for the most in a single Premier League campaign. But I went back over the past five seasons and 
Kane had a phenomenal goal-scoring season. It was one of his best ever in the Premier League. Uh, and obviously, if Erling Haaland wasn't doing what he did in Manchester City, I think he'd have got even more plaudits for it. Kane scored almost 43% uh, of Tottenham's goals. And in the past five years, only Timu Puki at Norwich in 2021-22 and Danny Ings at Southampton in 2019-20 scored a high proportion, which is, I think, not great company for a team that want to push sort of um, farther up the league. So... The highest we've seen of Kane scoring a proportion of Spurs' goals in, in five years and the same in terms of the big chances he was having. Um, it felt like a lot of the time, and I did a piece with, with Tim Spears on this earlier uh, at the start of last season, that they kept going 2-0 behind in games. They kept facing low blocks and it kept being a case of let's cross the ball to, to Kane, let's have set pieces where Kane was really good at, at the far post. But Spurs felt very predictable and I think that it came as no surprise that by the end of the season they were losing games and they were losing games at home. They were really, really poor and quite bland in Europe by the end of it that so many different types of team and not even some of the top Premier League teams were going to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and, and winning quite comfortably so I think that was quite telling. I mean got, with goals you know I'm like from a statistics perspective it's obviously skewed by the outcome a, a little bit but even looking at the the process side of things with the share of the team's volume of shots with with Harry Kane I took a look at it from last season and he took 25% of Spurs' total shots last season which was a higher proportion than any other player in the league. So you think of those in and amongst it was Ivan Tony at Brentford. Obviously, Brentford's attack geared more towards him. Alexander Mitrovic at, at Fulham. Mo Salah at Liverpool to a certain extent. And, of course, Erling Haaland at Manchester City. So, you know, as I say, the goal output might be a little bit inflated and potentially because he's such an elite finisher as well, he's going to score above his expectation. But the share of shots and the, the way that the attack was geared towards him, whether it was him at the end of the of the attack or sort of it running through him a little bit more with his chance creation. It was, as you spoke about before, Liam, if if he didn't perform, then kind of neither did Spurs really. And you think about sort of the system side of things, rather than him necessarily being part of a well-oiled attacking system, he kind of was the attacking system, especially because last season with Spurs, um, Kulisewski wasn't really on form and Son obviously had his, his injury issues and he wasn't quite in the same way. And both of those look to have changed this season, which is another factor to consider. But yeah, he was, everything ran through him and it was just such a heavy reliance in the process side of things when we're talking about shots and not just the output, I suppose, with the goals. Yeah, I think the Tottenham thing has been really interesting because, I mean, to go back to the, the players I mentioned earlier, Ronaldo, Lukaku, Aubameyang, basically just finishers. And I don't think it's a, a big story now that if you lose a finisher, it can mean you play better as a team. The fascinating thing about Kane was that he wasn't just a finisher. He was probably Spurs' most creative player as well. And the player who stepped up, and it tends to be someone stepping up, I think, rather than a replacement who really kind of compensates. The player who stepped up so far is Son. And Son, of course, was quite dependent on Kane. You know, the record for most assists from one player to another in, in the Premier League era is Kane for Son, 24 times, I think, level with Lampard for Drogba. But of course, Son wasn't playing at all well last year. He had a really bad season. I don't think that was anything tactical, anything to do with Kane, because that's such a great relationship. I think it was something individually that was happening with Son. But I think the pattern we generally see is if you lose a really big player, I think it's tough to bring in a direct replacement. I think you can bring in replacements who are doing other things in the team. But it feels to me like more often than not, you have players elsewhere in the team who are ready to step up. And we've seen that with two players, with Son and Richarlison, who both in different ways had terrible seasons last year, have come to the fore. Both have got experience of playing as the number nine. But there isn't pressure on anyone to be that replacement for Kane. And I suppose the closest thing is Madison, because he's wearing number 10. 
He's creative. He receives the ball in those pockets between the lines. And I think also just in terms of his, he's a charismatic guy. I, I do, he doesn't seem overawed by the prospect of playing for Spurs. So I think by hook or by crook, they've actually done it in quite a good way. I think if they'd if they'd got even a, a real kind of much lower level striker in, like if they'd gone, we need a number nine, let's take a gamble on like Jimenez, like Fulham have done. And I think his XG for the season so far was like 0.8 or something awful. I think there would have been so much like laughing at them and saying what a bad decision that was. But the fact that it's actually others who are playing up front and the replacement is a different type of player, I think makes the, the pressure a lot easier to go with. I agree. I just I think it's amazing that I don't I speak for myself, but I never saw this move coming in terms of switching Son to um, players the players the nine. But when you think about his attributes, that it makes an awful lot of sense, particularly with how much more pressing orientated the Premier League has become. I mean, we saw the Burnley game where he gets a hat trick and the sheer number of runs in behind that he got. Um, you know, when you compare him to Kane, Kane's probably one of the best finishers in the world. Some might be one of the only players who can match him, if not better him, for finishing off both feet. Often we've seen that from outside the box, but we're seeing it now in terms of, you know, being someone that gets into the penalty area to have one-touch finishes off of cutbacks. But there's plenty of times where uh, sort of when Spurs are now attacked against a low block that he's peeled out wide, he's played one-twos, effectively played what we would consider to be a, a trademark sort of winger. Uh, and that's fine because then Spurs have got full-backs, so they've got central midfielders now, or number 10 in Madison that can then crash into the box we saw that with SARS goal against Manchester United so it's no longer like you've got your striker vacating a space and then going we've got no one to cross to he can do that now because he's got those um, other players around him and I think it's just another good example we did a whole podcast about this last season of sort of retrading and repositioning players that um, I guess that comes down to Postacoglu everything I hear about him is he's just so open-minded and we'll go yeah, why can't we do that? He said the same thing in terms of playing I think it's Poro and, and Udogi at, at fullback where people go you can't do that and he goes I don't see why not. So that, that I think, is a, is a huge part of that from a coaching perspective. Yeah, there was always a funny thing with Son and Kane where despite their very good relationship, as, as those stats imply, when Kane was out and he did have a couple of kind of two-month injury absences, Son was always really good without him. I mean, certainly in that run to the Champions League final in 2019, I think there was a period where Son scored 11 in 11 or something like that. Obviously, Kane came back for the Champions League final. A lot of people said that was a mistake from Pochettino and they should have just used Son through the middle because he was playing well there. I don't actually agree with that. I thought Kane did all right in that game. But that, there was always that thing lurking in the background that Son did well without him. So I guess Son's just a very adaptable player, really. But it's interesting at Spurs because it's just... I also think it helps that it's a completely different manager and a completely different system. I mean, if it was still you know, Conte or whoever trying to play the exact same way without Kane with an inferior player... I think they would have run into problems, but the formation is completely different. I think the approach in possession is completely different. You've got fullbacks coming inside. You've got centre-backs who kind of a bit more proactive. I think the whole team is higher up the pitch. So, I mean, I'm amazed that I'm not looking at Spurs only six games after they've lost their all-time record goal scorer and going, they're missing Kane in this way. I just haven't seen a single sign of it, which is remarkable, really. One of the things that we've always liked to do on the pod is to debunk myths or footballing fallacies. So just quickly, based on the conversation we've just had, uh, can we definitively put to bed the old cliche of how are we going to replace 35 goals from Harry Kane? Yeah, I think we can. I mean, the point that it's difficult to replace is also quite true, but I think we almost saw the inverse of this last season where Haaland arrived at Manchester City and after sort of three, four months, we were having the discussion of well, he's actually not 
improve their attack all round. He's done the reverse of what we're talking about now with Spurs. Of he made City a bit more specific for a period. They needed time to adapt to that. That they, I think, John Mudd did a really good piece that they were still sort of scoring as a team the same number of goals per game, which is still ridiculously high. And I don't know if they can go much farther than that. But they were just sort of reallocated more to Haaland rather than being really well balanced. Well, they scored five fewer goals last season than they did the previous year, 99 down to 94, despite having a player who had a record-breaking goal-scoring season. So, yeah, I think it's a great example. Yeah, essentially, it feels like using that phrase and just focusing on replacing X number of goals is is essentially missing the point. Uh, I think before we move on, it's probably worth mentioning that Postacoglu himself has made it very clear that he would love to have Harry Kane playing uh, up front for his Spurs team. And I guess it's it's not hard to envisage him thriving in a system where he is somewhat less relied upon for goals and and I guess slotting into a system where he is less of a of a sort of talismanic figure um we will never know sadly when it comes to Spurs Postacoglu and and Harry Kane you're listening to the athletic football tactics podcast with Ali Maxwell looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Is it harder for teams outside the elite when they have a star player is generally because it's someone that's become elite with the club or potentially come through the youth system at that club and therefore hard to replace them with the uh, spending power available to them. We've got a few good examples here. Declan Rice at West Ham leaving this summer. Wilfred Zaha, of course, leaving Palace for the second time this summer. And then to a slightly different extent, Ivan Tony, who wasn't produced by the Brentford Academy, but certainly uh, has become elite, if you like, with the club. Liam, how have West Ham, Palace and Brentford approached losing their key players? Yeah, all in sort of slightly different ways. And I wrote a piece about this uh, sort of middle of the month if people want to go on site and, and read it because it's got some good stats in there and some sort of visualisations as well that obviously are very, very hard to explain. But I think West Ham are the most interesting one because tactically they've really doubled down on what worked for them in the in the Conference League last season and to a large degree actually um, in the Europa League in, in the year before and Moyes has sort of openly spoken of his pride of not losing games in Europe and being quite a defence first team and I think we've sort of given them a lot of praise on previous pods as well about using a system that really suits the players that they have in terms of having quick wingers that can play in transition. And they have also, you know, spent they spent money to reinvest in terms of James Ward Prowse and central midfield, so kind of raising the, the floor a bit there. They've just been such a frustrating team for lots of opposition defensively. They've sat in a really good compact block. Um Edson Alvarez at sort of the base of that midfield has been great, just 
cleaning up everything in midfield. They've not had to rely on a character like Declan Rice to do all the work defensively and to make those big driving runs in transition that uh, they've yeah really lent on their sort of winning principles from before as we said before having tried to evolve they've then gone okay this hasn't really worked for us and they've they've really stuck to that will that have a ceiling to it quite possibly but they've already had big wins this season against uh, Brighton and Chelsea so that I think speaks for itself yeah and I think it does speak to what you said before about that consistency of having a manager who is very very clear and a club at the moment who's very very clear in their identity their playing style such that you can have moving parts you can have certain players coming in whether that's throughout the season of players coming in and out of the team or, or through transfer windows of knowing that this is the style that we're going to, to play with rather than the style itself being geared towards the individual player to try and make the most of their their attributes in which case then when that player leaves it it falls like a deck of cards so I think that that's kind of happened with with Moises West Ham at the moment and you could think of other examples of that with the obvious one which we've spoken about a lot on this podcast is obviously Brighton where even the players themselves who have gone on to, to different sides haven't quite settled quite as quickly as you might imagine because they're, they're so what their their style was within the the Brighton system was so ingrained and it was a product of the the consistency right from the from the top from the sporting director and from the club level because we've even seen that you can extrapolate that to the manager as well in the way that Roberto De Zerbi has taken what Graham Potter's overall style was within the context of Brighton and taken that to a new new level as well so i think the the identity of the team is is kind of the the main thread that allows you to kind of mitigate against these sorts of factors yeah, I agree. I think Palace are a similar example in terms of becoming sort of more structured. I think it's easy to look at it as being more defensive. But I was speaking to Matt Woosnam, who, who's our Palace writer, you know, sort of saying that everyone quite quickly misprofiles Hodgson as a particularly defensive coach. He's saying it's not inherently defensive, but it's just being a bit more structured. So they've sort of gone from playing a 4-3-3 with one sort of number six, as we would call it, but Royce as DM apparently hates hates the numbering, um, and two more advanced midfielders. And he's basically flipped that triangle to have two deep line players in, in Lerma and Decore and then just sort of have one further forward and which is often Eze and that's then sort of shifted the burden to him a bit more Um, I think they've been sort of compounded by injury to Michael Elise who of course is is so devastating and and so so good maybe a similar type player to Zaha when he was at Palace just obviously playing on on the opposite side so when you do have that individual brilliance you've just got fewer of those players so when injury hits you as well as having to adapt to losing someone there are just sort of fewer solutions to that I refuse to believe that Hodgson says DM by the way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want I want evidence of that. True. Um, the, the Zaha one interests me though because as much as him sort of being the the best player, the key player, whatever, I think the change now for for Palace this season is that they just look to be less predictable, and that is a, is a key strength in itself because they did always look through to to run everything through Zaha from a, a creative perspective and an attacking perspective in general. And I looked at this in in the numbers, so I often speak about attacking touches um, and splitting that across the third. So the the left, middle and the the right third of the pitch. And if you were to imagine an even balance across that, it would obviously be 33% across each third of the pitch. And in the last five Premier League seasons, Palace have been so heavily geared towards the left third of the pitch, obviously where Zaha is, as you can imagine, and they haven't fallen below 40% of their attacking touches on the left of the pitch in each of those last five full seasons. And this season, they're really nicely balanced across the, the left and the right third of the pitch with 37% each. So it shows in the numbers, if nothing else, that they are starting to to adapt to 
to Zaha leaving and then players drifting across each side of the pitch, but also being, as I say, a little bit less predictable and having crosses um, from both sides. Yeah, Tariq Mitchell at left back as well has been quite a good player that pushing forward a lot more. Joel Ward at right back tends to be um, a little bit more defensive. There's a really great assist. I can't remember who it's for. I think it's in the in the Edward. Wolves game. It might well be um, a really, really nice sort of whipped ball in. And I think, I don't know, Mitchell's just someone that I... Nacho in my head was a bit more defensive minded. So he's someone that I think when you look at maybe England's lack of options at left back, if he can really evolve and kick on the season, I know he's played a lot of minutes for Palace in, in recent years. Um, could definitely be someone that might have a, a future there in the international setup. And when it came to Brentford, Thomas Frank was clear saying, we believe that the forward players we have will provide enough goals in the absence of Ivan Tony. Uh, what do we make of the first six games of the season for Bees? Yeah, I've, I've been mixed on Brentford. Um, Part of what I think they're doing anyway is trying to evolve tactically. Thomas Frank spoke in pre-season about sort of adding layers um, and being a bit more of a ball-dominant team. I think they're trying to move away from um, being one of the more defensive teams at times. There was a great stat of how many games they sort of won in the Premier League with with a minority share of possession. And of course, they often still switch back to the 3-5-2 against the, the big six opposition sort of plus Newcastle really and of course have got a great record in that so I guess they never want to lose that part of their game uh, but I, I watched them against Bournemouth actually actually went to the game and uh, it was interesting that they were quite good going forward at times and Johan Visser who plays as a, a nine is probably quite different to Tony's profile he's a lot smaller but he comes to feet a lot more as well and he's a bit more of a, a link player in that regard you've got Mboema off, off the right um, who again is played sort of as a second striker off Tony and Kevin Sharder who is now injured I think off, off the left so Joe Harris, the, the Brentford reporter, when I was speaking with him, he's, he made a really good point that those three forwards are probably all a lot more versatile than Tony, who is definitely harder to stop because he's such a good jumper, but also plays quite a specific game. And of course, that is often being so airily good and, and such a good one-touch box finisher. So again, to, to Mark's point about being, I think, more unpredictable, so I think definitely that, that Brentford have tried to do. And to some good success, they've looked a bit more open defensively too, I think, which comes from probably having such a good defensive base when you are um, yeah, kind of organised like that. So... I was intrigued by them bringing in Neil Morpay on loan as well from Everton because that's that's kind of undermining his own point from Thomas Franken saying we think they'll provide enough goals. Um, but I think they're in that natural stage of a team trying to evolve uh, sort of three seasons now in, into the Premier League. Yeah, I was going to say absences for different reasons, whether it's injuries or summer departures or in, in the case of Tony, a, a ban. But I think it's quite hard to really identify reliably, especially in such a short space of time where and why Brentford maybe are a little bit weaker because obviously they lost David Raya. Uh, Pontus Janssen left in the summer as well. Ivan Tony we, we know about and Enrico Henry's injury um, I think could be a, a really key one. I spoke to a Brentford fan at the weekend and he argued that Rico Henry's injury is arguably a bigger loss than, than Tony in terms of the contribution towards the overall attack because you think about Tony is key in the, sort of the the top end of the the attacking sequence, but Rico Henry in the way that he gets Brentford sort of out across the the left side is absolutely key. So if you can't get the ball consistently and effectively into those attacking players, then that's maybe where you have the problem. So you've got to think of it kind of further up the chain and kind of right through the spine of the pitch. Brentford have lost some some key players, so it's it's quite hard to reliably identify maybe where the differences are and, and why they are. I suppose. And let's just move across the channel briefly to talk about PSG. Uh, to what extent do they apply to this conversation? They lost not one, but two star players over the uh, over the last year or so with Messi and Neymar leaving. And it leaves behind one superstar in Kylian Mbappe. Talk me through that transition over at PSG. It's quite similar to Spurs, if I was going to compare it in a way, because they've also brought in a new manager or a new head coach in Luis Enrique and... I think his early games, I mean, it's been their worst start to a, a Ligue 1 season um, since 
uh, their takeover in 2011, at least in their first sort of five or six games. And they had a couple of early draws where they looked quite uninspiring. Uh, and then Nice really pulled them apart, I think a couple of Fridays ago now in, in transition. But they've had two really good games in a row now. They beat Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League and, and looked really good and really controlled. And of course, it's a, a big win against Marseille in the Classique, admittedly with Marseille having really, really big problems of their own. Uh, and of course, their win at Lyon is also against a team with big problems, but you can only beat what's in front of you. Um, I think they're interesting tactically, primarily because he's tried a few different things, Lewis Enrique. He's tried three different number nines already and just sort of his first six games, I think it was, he, he played Marco Asensio as a, as a false nine. He started Gonzalo Ramos as a, as a number nine, then moved to Randal Kolumouani. And of course, it's good now for them having sort of three um, French forwards with him, Mbappe and Ousmane Dembele in, in the forward line. And then against Marseille, when Mbappe got injured and went off, again, they showed their adaptability. Um, they actually played Gonzalo Ramos and Kolumouani uh, as sort of a, a front two. And it worked better than I think maybe expected it to at the time. They tend to attack a bit more um, dominant down their right side. Hakimi is a really good attacking right back and, and tends to push on a lot more. Uh, Lucas Hernandez on the left tucks round and it basically becomes that 3-2-5 that we know of um, at, at many of the many of the top teams build up with. And I think Warren Zeremery in that midfield is definitely the player to watch. He's, he's 17, but he looks you know comfortably at that level. And of course, having lost Verratti, and I really enjoyed Michael's piece on that about his quality. Um, it's a hard player to replace in that regard. I think the funny thing about them getting a new manager in is that it's a manager who had previously created a great system with Messi and Neymar and they're the player, two players who left. That's interesting actually, yeah. I mean, in terms of Messi and Neymar leaving, I think it's maybe worth touching upon a, a, another American sports term called usage rate. So from basketball, it's it's basically an estimate of the percentage of team plays used by a player while they were on the, the floor in basketball. You think about it in the, the pitch um, in football. So essentially how much they use up a, a side's possession. And I did a piece on this with Tom Warville just as Messi was arriving at PSG the summer that he was coming there. And essentially Neymar and Messi both had the highest share of their team's touches in the final third in the season before um, they, they joined forces at PSG. So something kind of had to give in that regard anyway and of course it did and even if they are to sort of share the burden from an attacking perspective which again they did the attack was always running through either of them which is kind of fine when they're so possessionally dominant territorially dominant against a, a team like Angers in in Ligue 1 but they it was a little bit easier for the elite teams to sort of figure them out in a, in a Champions League game and just basically work out how to stop them, if not from an attacking perspective, then to get you know in behind them because they knew that the those players plus Mbappe wouldn't uh, you know perform as much defensively. So Mbappe is still the, obviously the key player, and we can sort of compare that maybe to to Kane in terms of having that still single star player. But Mbappe is quite different, isn't he? Because he's sort of maybe more inclined to do more off ball work, and he's not going to necessarily drop in and be the one to kind of demand the ball he wants to be on the end of the attack rather than kind of early on in the the attacking sequence so I, I think it's really interesting I think this is another example of a bit like the Postacoglu example where it's all quite fresh as well because Luis Enrique has come in in the summer and it's a it's a bit of a, a blank slate so we we shall see but the, the early signs look like they are far more coherent as a, as a team structure. I think we need to not underestimate the out of possession side of things as well we talk about PSG often as such a ball dominant team in, in Liga, and I think Sure, they've had quite a bad start here, but the way that they're playing looks more sustainable for their sort of Champions League ambitions. It was quite evident against Dortmund where they had seven high turnovers, which was double their per match average in their previous two Champions League campaigns. Um, and they had six of those in the opening sort of half hour, which if you go back over the last five years, there's only two Champions League games where they had more than that number of high turnovers. And 
that's just going to be really important to to press well and press effectively and be a good defensive unit, not be that almost seven and three when you've got sort of Mbappe, Messi and, and Neymar that aren't offering you much defensively. I remember watching them, I think it was against Bayern in the Champions League last season where when they went behind in the game, they just didn't offer enough going forward. Um, and I think City were a great example last season of how important your pressing is to be a good um, top-level Champions League team and to find solutions against uh, really, really good opponents. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Loudrup as if the ghost pass defenders as though they don't exist. This is going to be one of the goals of the tournament. Magnificent. The boys are genius. And Michael, it strikes me that this sort of discussion can be applied to international football as well. Uh, there must have been instances across major international tournaments throughout history of teams losing a, a star player, perhaps to injury, uh, for that to have felt devastating pre-tournament and then for the team to have actually overperformed or, or dare I say even win a competition. Yeah, maybe the best example is Denmark in 1992 whose star player Michael Laudrup basically didn't cancel his holiday because they got entered into the tournament at the last minute after Yugoslavia withdrew because of because of war in their country. Uh, Laudrup couldn't be bothered, didn't fancy Denmark's chances of winning and they did go and win it. Um, but yeah, there's a few examples over the years. I mean, Cruyff didn't play it uh, World Cup 78, obviously Netherlands lost in the final rather than uh, actually winning it. But I think in a in a few examples in, in recent years, or I guess I'm going back 15-ish years, when a player that a team has depended upon for a long time retires or gets moved aside, that team tends to step up. I think that very obviously happened with Spain when Raul was basically unceremoniously dropped from the squad after World Cup 2006, they immediately became a much better team. Everyone else stepped up and they won three tournaments in a row. I think the same thing happened for Germany. Michael Ballack was basically the main man for the best part of a decade, especially World Cup 2002. Germany had a real dearth of world-class players and he got them through so many difficult moments. And then he got injured, I think in the World Cup final, Oh, sorry, in the FA Cup final, yeah. 2010, and immediately Germany just looked like this young, exciting force and eventually won the World Cup in 2014. Maybe could have won a couple more tournaments, to be honest. And I think England, despite the lack of a trophy, for years there was a kind of, I'd say, a period between the golden generation and the current generation where England basically just had Wayne Rooney and not many other players. 
And towards the end, I think Rooney was was still scoring goals, but I think his limitations were causing England a lot of problems. And I think one of the best things that Southgate did was just move to him aside really without too much fuss. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's brought the best out of Kane. There's so many other attacking players that England can depend upon now. So yeah, it definitely seems to be a thing at international level, which I think is interesting because to go back to a point I made earlier, I think it's difficult to bring in players at clubs to replace a star man. And obviously necessarily at international level, you have to cope with what you've already got unless someone just overnight has emerged. And it does seem to work often quite smoothly. Rooney's an interesting player to talk about at club level here as well, isn't he? Because at his best, such a talismanic player by his very nature, but also someone who had pretty unusual development and change as he aged, uh, particularly in, in terms of his position. Michael, is there anything in, in Rooney's departure from Manchester United or even early in his career from Everton where we can discuss the team almost benefiting from his departure? Yeah, I'm not sure about the Manchester United one just because I think it's slightly complex and so many different things going on there and different changes of manager and stuff. But certainly when he left Everton, I think is probably the best example in terms of pure numbers of a side improving. I mean, he left them in 2004 when they'd finished 17th, so one place above the relegation zone. And the following season, they improved to fourth. I think the caveat there is Rooney was never really established as one of the best players in the league. We all knew he had tremendous potential. But you look at his goal-scoring return, I mean, his impact on games was was good. But I think just by the fact they were 17th shows that he hadn't really got to that level. It was really at Euro 2004 where he showed his best form. But yeah, it was a similar thing where they lost one player. They brought in five or six other players, I think all kind of four or five million pounds. No one really big name. And they became, you know, certainly the best Everton team of the of the Premier League era. So yeah, in, in terms of pure numbers, to go from 17th to 4th is, is quite remarkable. Who else do we need to talk about, guys? Chuck a few names in the mix. Uh, the obvious ones, Gareth Bale's departure from Tottenham Hotspur, which saw them sign a ton of players to try and uh, make up the difference, if you like. Uh, and then Christian Perslow's quotes after Jack Grealish left Aston Villa feel apt to remember, where he spoke about uh, the fact they were never going to try and replace Grealish with just one player. And in fact, they wanted to reduce an over-dependence on one brilliant footballer. How do we think that went for both Spurs and then Villa? I think their approach of sort of signing players all in the same window is something we see a bit less now. I think clubs are, I think it's part, partly because of the inflation in the transfer market that if someone knows you're coming with a hundred plus million pounds to spend, then suddenly you start getting bumped for price of it and have to pay more. I mean, Villa brought in, I think it was Bailey, uh, Ings and Buendia, who I think were all fairly decent returns to them. I know Ings has now left, but Bailey still sort of plays quite an important role at times, I think, and Buendia's been a consistently good player for them from from what I've seen. Um, I think that's probably a more relevant example for most Premier League teams because Bale was just so incredible and so outstanding that it felt like at times he he carried that Spurs team to some really good performances and then trying to replace that is um, even harder. And we're now looking at what a decade on from the, the seven players that, that Spurs bought and it just feels like a case of learning from the mistakes of... I think there's a real limit of the talent that you can bring in because you're running the risk of either buying someone who's underdeveloped or there's going to be a limited number of players in Europe that have hit really good performances. And then likewise, you don't want to overpay for someone that's just had sort of a really good season. And clubs now are clearly so conscious of, we've scouted this player for two, three years. I feel like you often hear um, with things and it's a case of always trying to avoid those panic buys or spending excessively. Um, and as Michael said, when you 
can adapt to the players that you've got and have them step up or replace with someone who might graduate from the, the youth academy is I think seen as a lot more sustainable and just, just beneficial for, for everyone involved. I think in general, bringing in multiple players in one single window or across a couple of windows is never going to be productive, whether that's because a player's left or you think about Chelsea this season, it was never going to be absolutely coherent from the start because they've got so an influx of so many young players trying to figure out a system in a short space of time. It, I think it's more just a wider point of, of doing too much too soon. But that Villa example was, was an interesting one where you're right, uh, Liam, that they brought in Ings, Buendia, Leon Bailey, but they also brought in Ashley Young in that summer. And then in the, the January, they brought in Luca Dina, Callum Chambers and Philippe Coutinho, all of whom were trying to go straight into the starting 11 rather than necessary for the squad. I suppose that there's, there's a distinction there is whether you're bringing players to strengthen the squad or trying to strengthen the starting 11. But Coutinho actually brings me on to, I mean, I've always got my Liverpool hat on, uh, that Coutinho in 2017 like on the touchline, you've always got your <laughs> Liverpool hat on. Exactly right. That I think he's quite a pertinent one because when he left Liverpool in 1718. Arguably, I think that was the, the foundation, the catalyst for Liverpool's subsequent success in in the years after because that was the 1718 season was the the sum that summer was when Mo Salah came into into the side and um Jurgen Klopp was trying to figure out a way to potentially shoehorn in four really strong forwards so obviously Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, Mo Salah and Philippe Coutinho and he didn't quite get it right there was times when Coutinho played as a as number 8 and it didn't quite work and the other times where I think Mane would be maybe dropped and Coutinho would play off the left and it just, they didn't have quite a coherent midfield and forward line. But then when Coutinho left that January, I think it was, that it just created such a clear blueprint of how to play. And then it was the sort of the famed phrase of the, the workmanlike midfield of Milner, Henderson and uh, Wijnaldum. And then that allowed Mane for Firmino and Salah to be more aggressive, both in and out of possession, knowing that they had a really strong foundation behind them. And then obviously that season, they got to the Champions League final, won the Champions League the following season and won the Premier League the, the season after that. So I think it was a, an absolute blessing in disguise. Yeah, I must say, I, I said this at the time when Barcelona were, were bidding for him. I was, because I mean, I was a big Coutinho sceptic. I never liked him at all as a footballer, to be honest. And I was saying that just when you're being offered that much, money and you've got a manager who's saying gig impressing is the best playmaker there is kind of thing just bite your hand off he didn't need a replacement and the reaction i got was just that it was almost like a statement of intent to keep him and i just think that's when individualism just goes too far in terms of actually planning a good football side that's not what it's about you know i thought it was i thought it was two clubs really Barcelona were trying to make a statement of intent by spending a huge amount of money on a player. Okay, a good player, but not a player they really needed. So, yeah, I think that's a great example of just something that, that you could kind of predict would turn out well. I, di I didn't have any expectation Spurs, I know it's early days, I thought they'd be a disaster zone for at least half a season while they're trying to get over Kane. But the Coutinho one to me always made much more sense in terms of just a player who didn't really fit the system. Well, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, guys, for, for talking me through it. I feel like, in conclusion, uh, the idea is that you can lose your best player and it doesn't need to be the end of the world. Um, a really interesting discussion this week with Mark, Michael uh, and Liam. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let us know what you think about this episode. You can comment uh, specifically on the episode page on The Athletic app. And make sure you're a subscriber of The Athletic. Uh, you can become one today if you go to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. 
and read everything that Mark, Michael and Liam are writing as well as their colleagues. Uh, And make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed so that you can join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.